Welcome to the Way Life Should Be podcast. Inspiring stories of people who are making the world a better place, the qualities that guide them, and lessons they've learned along the way. I'm your host, Lauren Lombard. I am here with Russell Day, who is the founder and manager of the 15 White Coats. And I am really inspired by his story and what it has grown into already. And I'm excited to hear more of the background and what inspired it and what the hopes and dreams are for the future. So Russell, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I first saw this photo that you guys took on Twitter and it was really a very striking image of 15 medical students from Tulane University standing in front of slave quarters in a plantation, I think an hour away from Tulane. Yep. And this photo really communicated so much. And I think people see and, and feel different things seeing it. I just wanted to get a little bit of the background of who you are, what inspired this photo, and what your hopes and dreams are for where this will go or what it is you're wanting to communicate with people. I am I'm a second year uh, MD MBA student at, um, at Tulane School of Medicine and the School of Business um, at the same time. Awesome. Um, yeah. So, so just to um, give a little background for um, how we ended up taking this photo. So um, I went to NYU School of Medicine before I came to Tulane to get my PhD in molecular oncology and tumor immunology. Um, And so while I was getting my PhD there, I developed a friendship with um, one of my closest friends, Philip Thomas, who he and I both went to historically black colleges and universities, AKA HBCUs. Um, And so black history is critically important to us um, for a lot of different reasons, um, more so than anything because we are um, black and we also come from the South. So he's from North Carolina and, um, and I'm from Lake Charles, Louisiana. And so black history is critically important to us. Well, after I got, after I finished my PhD, um, I started medical school and business school here at Tulane University. And he came down to visit me the summer after my first year of medical school, which Mm -hmm. was this past July. Um, And before he came, we had had a conversation about visiting the Whitney Plantation um, because of our, our, you know, our, our desire to learn more about black history mm, mm-hmm. and also because the Whitney plantation was very different from um, from other plantations in that it focuses on the lives and the experiences of the enslaved as opposed to glamorizing the lives of the owners mm-hmm. um, or, or the terrorists is probably the best way to put it not, yeah. some, not, not the owners but but terrorists is the way I see it um, and so, you know, and, and so my daughter ended up coming. So she plays tennis and she was in a tennis camp. And I was like, I think you're going to skip tennis today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, I think skip tennis more today. You're gonna take... Yeah, I think this is just a little bit more important. Um, so she took the trip with me um, and Philip and uh, the, the three of us went down to Edgar, Louisiana, 
um, in St. John the Baptist Parish, and it was it was a soul rocking experience. Is probably the best way to put it. Mm. That July, that July summer was it was hot. It was hot, and it was it was incredibly hot. So hot that like you could feel the heat rising up from the ground. Um, and it was it was soul rocking because you had to try your best to to not want to cry at every turn mm. understanding that this was literally a land of terrorism like mm. people were literally being terrorized day in and day out for no other reason other than the perception that they were someone's property mm-hmm. and so you know that that kind of it, it jolted me like I mean it literally unjarred like a whole lot of emotions and, and thoughts in my mind and, and how I perceive even my own position here in America now um and and helped me to take into account a lot of privileges that I um so you know so haphazardly take advantage of every day um and you know for my daughter it was actually for me as a parent it was kind of upsetting because I felt like there were moments that we were there and there were critical learning moments and she was just kind of off in la la land and I thought she wasn't paying any attention and she wasn't you know I was mm-hmm. just being a parent mm-hmm. um, you know and so when we got in the car to leave when we were on the road you know heading back um, I was talking to Philip, and she was like dad I was like what's up Malia I'm having a conversation with Uncle Phil um, she was like you know I gotta tell you something like what's up and she was like you know being a black doctor in America is a big deal she's like it's a big deal and so in my mind I'm thinking oh yeah I've been trying to tell you that for like forever (laughs) right like I'm like I'm like you act like that's something I haven't told you before um and she's like, no, no, no. I was like, okay, well, what? I was like, okay, Malia, what, what prompted you to say this? What, what made you have this epiphany that Dad has been telling you forever? And she was like, uh, well, you got to think about it. We just left a plantation. She's like, did you know that on that plantation, there was a time when black people couldn't just leave and just say, oh, I'm gonna go be a doctor, or oh, I'm gonna go be a lawyer, or oh, I'm gonna go be this, or oh, I'm gonna go be an accountant. Or I'm gonna go be a firefighter. She's like, they were in shackles. They couldn't do anything. She was like, they just had to sit there and get beaten and raped and murdered and you know. She was like, and to for us to come this far to where like you'll be not just one kind of doctor, but two types of doctor. Um is like that's a big deal. And you black. <laughs> She's like all at the same time you know and so in that moment i was like oh yeah she gets it i was mm-hmm. like okay she finally gets it. um and, and for an eight-year-old at the time who's nine years old now um to say that i was like oh if she could get that from this mm-hmm. how much more what my classmates get from this mm-hmm. like because like we're older we're you know we're more seasoned we've experienced a lot of life and so I looked over at Phil and was like, yo, my classmates got to see this. I was like, yo, they got it. I was like, they got to see this. I was like, man, students got to see this. 
So I came back. I reached out to um, some of my close classmates, Sydney Labat, um, Gabrielle Wusahansa, uh, a few others, Jasmine uh, Taylor, um, Kristen Brown, and some others. And um, was like, yo, I got, got this idea. I was like, I think we should get a bunch of black medical students together. We should go to this plantation together. Mm-hmm. And we should go experience together. I was like, and then we should go there with our white coats and take photos. And then, like, it'll be iconic and it'll speak volumes. And we're going to yeah. help people understand how far we've come and how far we still have to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the birth of, uh, of, of that idea. That's amazing. I actually recently visited a plantation in Charleston, South Carolina, and was incredibly moved by mm. that experience um, because I could just feel the history, literally the blood, sweat, and tears that made this place. And I didn't feel like I could fully process the beauty of the area because all I could see was what this place represented. And I can only imagine what it might be like for you to experience that, to see this place and the cost. But also, you know, I think it's really interesting the perspective you have. Like your daughter was saying, there was no opportunities and the things that are now able to be achieved are those dreams. But I'm, I'm curious, like, what was your experience going the first time with your daughter and then going again with your classmates and a plan to take a photo, to wear your white coats. Um, was that different or were you still experiencing all the same emotions and was that very similar the two times that you went? I think where it's similar in that I went there with people that I was close to. Mm-hmm. And so like we have our own shared perception of Right of, of just like our bodies living right now mm-hmm. in America, dealing with our own issues, right? Like we aren't beyond the issues of today. Mm-hmm. Um, and and a, there are a lot of issues of today that are a direct product of what happened then. Um, and so I think that initial time that I went was just kind of me and Phil looking at each other and being like, bruh, like, cause we pride ourselves on being black scientists, right? Like I, I have a PhD from mm-hmm. NYU School of Medicine. He's finishing his PhD from NYU School of Medicine. Um, I don't think that there are um, a plethora of black men from HBCUs who went to HBCUs, who went on to these prestigious universities and went and got their PhD. Right. And both of us are also Howard Hughes Medical Institute fellows, mm. which is like the upper echelon of awarding for scientists who are still getting in, in training, right? And so, like, for us to look at each other and be like, yo, like, listen, we really doing our thing in terms of, you know, um, being black scientists and being proud to be black and also proud to be scientists. Um, we doing our thing, but we also understand that a lot of us doing our thing is on the backs of people who literally had to die. Mm-hmm. Like they literally had to die. They had to fight a system that had no intention 
of any of what we're doing right now ever happening. And there's still resistance for that happening. So, you know, I think that was kind of the lens that I looked through it, looked at it through when I went with Phil and my daughter. Um, I also understood that taking my daughter that first time was kind of like a primer. Mm-hmm. Right. So she's young and, and her perception of the world is kind of um, it, it's the perception of an eight year old at the time. Right. Um, and I mean, while she's a very insightful child, um, she she can't possibly perceive it the same way, you know, Philip right. and I would. But I, there were things that were child level learning that she did get. And I guess enough of that experience happened for her to be like, hold on, some of what my dad was trying to get me to understand from this is clicking. And I'm trying to put the puzzle pieces together and it's starting to work. And I think the second time we went, it was a lot of people think that we did this intentionally. We intentionally took the photos, but the the purpose of us going to the plantation wasn't about the photos. That was like a, oh yeah, we gonna do that. And that was like actually the last thing we did. It might have taken us like less than ten minutes to do that. You wanted um, them to experience what you had experienced, right? And there. we needed to experience that together mm-hmm. in our own isolated space. So everybody who went was black, um, and like so, medical school itself. You got to have the context of medical school. Medical school is hell. Mm-hmm. It's like legitimately hell, and it will try you. You experience a lot of imposter syndrome. You experience a lot of, am I worthy of even being here? Am I supposed to be here? Mm-hmm. And how am I supposed to make it through this? And all these different things. And so my initial thought was, we need this for ourselves. Like, we need to remember, first of all, what lineage we come from so mm-hmm. that we can remind ourselves of what's inside of us, what we're capable of. Because sometimes you forget what's inside of you, like where the people behind you came from and what they deposited into you and what you need to dig for and find so that you can get through whatever struggle you're going through. Um, But we also needed our own special collective just us moment that wasn't like um, approved of by people who can't get why we even needed to go to the plantation. You know, like we didn't have like we didn't have time to do a whole lot of it like let me explain to you why this is important right we just need uh, this is for us this is only for us we don't care if you approve of it or not this ain't even about you (laughs) this is about us um type of moment and going there which was so far away from school um and you know it it was kind of on our own early in the morning um 9 a.m in the morning and it was just kind of like just for us so we we all wore black um, we brought our white coats and, uh, you know, we were, those photos were like the last thing we were doing. Um, and to be candid, there was actually, um, a moment before we took the photos that I kind of had almost was like, I, I had almost thought like, maybe we just don't need to take the photos and just take the experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I was reminded like, nah, like people need to, people needed to understand the calamity of slavery Mm -hmm. like how bad i think what people are captivated by is the in your face like recognition that slavery had no intention of the people who are standing there in those white coats being there (laughs) Mm -hmm. because in america old doctors with such a high esteem right it's like everybody's like oh i hope you become a doctor when you grow up right and so it's kind of like well, damn, the system didn't work. 
where like the system intensely was supposed to kill these people, like make sure that they are never in any, you know. So now we got this high esteem position in America, in the backdrop of a system that was literally designed to, you know, destroy these people. And it's kind of like a moment of, oh well, that system didn't work. You yeah. Know? So that that's kind of what that is. So you had this idea to take a photo and then you had this experience that was overarching of the photo you were wanting to take originally and then you decided you wanted to take a photo anyway so that you could communicate some small measure of what you're experiencing or what your ancestors and everyone has worked to overcome to be where you're at now. Um, Was the original idea with that or the, the thought at the time to just share that photo or was there any concept of creating the 15 white coats did that kind of come out of the attention you got for the photo or did you have some idea of creating a space and something more organized to share in schools and on different platforms what you're about and what you're trying to share right so personally i i'm I'm gonna say personally when i told the group like yo this is gonna be iconic and this is gonna speak volumes. In my mind, I was like, yo, I think this is gonna be bigger than us taking photos. Mm. I didn't know what that bigger than was because I think that that took like some collective effort for everyone to realize like, yo, like we have a platform now to say something mm-hmm. and make some change. Um, and I don't, I don't think, I would be remiss if I said that it was because of the attention it wasn't the attention, it's the impact. Mm-hmm. I think it's the conversations that have been generated as a function of those photos being revealed that mm-hmm. that forced us to organize. Not not like the, the Instagram likes or Twitter retweets. It's the fact that like the vice president of the American Medical Association, Dr. Aletha Maybank, was like, yo, Mm. Which I like, that's a big deal. And I'm like, first of all, you're a big deal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. like, for you to call us and tell us that what we're doing is a big deal, it has to mean something, right? Like, I mean, I remember, so Talib Kweli is um, this hip hop artist who I have followed for like, I don't know, since I was a kid from Gutter Rainbows to a whole bunch of other hip hop albums that he had. Um, um, I remember tweeting him and being like, yo, I hope you see what we're doing. And he was like, yeah. He was like, yo, y'all speaking volumes right now. Mm-hmm. Um, DL Hughley, um, Eddie, you know, Eddie Griffin, um, Joy Reid. I mean, it was like so many people that we were like, whoa, like, hold on we're making an impact like hold on if we're making an impact we better make sure we utilize it because the other part of it is too right is that like we don't get this opportunity often um to utilize this impact for good Mm -hmm. so while you have captured people's attention directed towards something that can further people and specifically for us is people that are disenfranchised like that's the bottom line right is that like nobody cares like the only people who write the history are the victors you know mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> the, absolutely that's part of the problem know, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah that's kind of like part of the problem right yeah. that, like the 
Sixers are telling the story. And so, it's one-sided. you know, those, yeah, you know, that's, that's where we are with that. Oh, that's, that's amazing. I, what I see is that you're taking a photo that's hoping to communicate something and it's just resonating on such a deep level with some, yeah. so many people. They say that a photo is worth more than a thousand words. <laughs> and I see that with this photo that you all took, because it's, it's certainly achieved getting people's attention, but it's also inspired action. And I'm also wondering, out of the conversations you've had, it's really been about impact and it's provided an opportunity or platform to have some of these conversations with people that you don't know or even people you admire and have followed for a long time. What are your hopes for this movement that you're starting and for the education or awareness that you can bring both from a lens of black history, as you mentioned earlier, coming from a HBCU school and background to now pursuing medicine and like your daughter said there's there are not enough black doctors but especially men in medicine um so what are you hoping that this becomes or what opportunities has it already presented that you're excited to build on yeah so so from this um we've launched a website um which I, I know you know it's the one five white coach.org. Um, and so we, we've hung our hats on three different missions. Um, and the first one is to put a hundred thousand copies of this photo in a hundred thousand learning spaces around the nation. Um, and we think that's because so, so the reason why we want to do that is because of something that we've um, thought of as cultural imagery. Right, so, so kids need to see things that look like them, mm-hmm. images, that, images, images that they can relate to in order to start to imagine that that's what they can be. Right. Um, and, and in order for us to do that, we can be an initiator of doing so by leveraging our current platform to raise enough money to do so, to place these, these posters um, in classrooms at no cost to learning education centers mm-hmm. um, and that goes from k-12 through schools to pre-k schools to mm. you know uh i mean we feel like colleges at least have enough money to contribute in some sort of way to what we're doing um you know but 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 k-12 through settings for sure um to alleviate that financial burden and just drop off the poster to them with the message and, and a conversation starter around racial equity and medicine and um your possibilities of what you can be is something that we can do. The second thing is, is um, so a lot of people don't know this, but applying to medical school, I didn't say paying for medical school, mm. just applying to medical school costs between $3,500 and $10,000. Wow. That's super expensive. Yeah. <laughs> that's, like, that's incredibly expensive. Yeah, that alone is very limiting. Exactly. To... So, Exactly. So that's an economic barrier all in itself. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. And so we want to raise money to try to help alleviate that and provide some scholarships to some people. Um, We did just recently announce uh, our first two scholarships um, to uh, students of color going to an upcoming conference. So we raised enough money to do that. 
um, an upcoming medical conference that's super important for them positioning themselves for residency. And we're actually going to announce our uh, our winners of that that scholarship uh, in, as soon as I get off this podcast. Awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, so we're excited about that. And then the last part is what I think is probably the most critical piece is 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 cultural literacy. Mm. And cultural literacy is really the idea that children in certain communities don't need to read Gone with the Wind. They okay. just don't. Yeah. Like they'll be okay if they don't read that book. They'll also be okay if they don't read Huckleberry Finn. Mm-hmm. I think um, they won't be okay if they don't read Toni Morrison mm-hmm. um, or Ta-Nehisi Coates mm-hmm. or Ralph Ellison, right? Like they they, they need to read or Carter G. Woodson. You know, or Frederick Douglass. They need to read books and topics that relate to their existence, mm-hmm. um, because that will drive a desire to learn and a desire to read. Right. Right. Like, so if you read something that is boring, and you don't resonate with. Which, am- yeah. Yeah. You like What's the point of me reading that? Like, it has nothing to do <laughs> with who I am. And why am I sitting up here talking about some lady sitting on a porch crying about the fact that no one wants to give her any attention? <laughs> right? Like, this yeah. histrionic behavior 101. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we think that it's important for us to place books within reach of children um, that, like, so the books need to be culturally relevant. And that's not just mm-hmm. for black kids, that's for all of the others the LGBTQ community, the, you know, the Hispanic kids, or the Latina X community, the African Americans, the the indigenous brothers and sisters, you know, the Alaskan natives, the the, the um, Southeast Asian, that's that's everybody, man. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you need to be conscious of what people's experience is and then have them read something that actually resonates with who they are. Mm, that's wonderful. So that, you know, at least their foundation for yeah. reading is built on their interest. Yeah, there's not good representation from all of the people who are reading books. Like kids in school right. often see things from a majority one side, <laughs> even if there's some authors included here and there, or some different. Um, you know, there's some schools that are doing better about um, having more broad topics or or authors it's still not the norm not the majority and very needed to both understand history and culture but also to identify with people who have shared an experience similar to yours and who have built the platform that you're on now I think that's amazing so you have a PhD in molecular oncology and now we're in school for both business and medicine. Did you have a dream to become a doctor for a long time, or did that kind of build on each other? I know that there's a, a shockingly low number of black men in medicine. Did that help propel you towards that, or did that just become a, a driver after you, you were in medicine? And what has your journey been? Yeah. I'm going to take the short route to tell a long <laughs> one. <laughs> no, nah, medicine wasn't even on my radar. Science wasn't on my radar. Wow. I 
had a rough upbringing and, and rough is probably an understatement mm. my sister and i were regularly digging in dumpsters for our our, uh, our food mm. so this <laughs> this wasn't on my radar it wasn't even on the um, radar yeah Nah, I mean, what? Like, come on, man. Like, nah. Yeah. I didn't even know anybody who graduated college when I was in high school. So I, I didn't know anyone like, you know, I didn't really know anyone who had graduated college. So the long story in a short way is that, I, you know, I, I so I only had one option coming out of high school, which was to go to the military. And that wasn't for a lack of good grades or any of that. Um, but it was the only way out that, you know, presented itself in a pretty simple way. Um, so I went to the United States Navy, um, and my first duty station was in Washington, D.C. I met some super important people, and I would always ask them, like, how do you become successful? Mm. They're like, oh, like, because I only had a desire to, my, my biggest fear is going back to where I came from. Mm. That's, like, what I live with every day, is, like, I got to do everything in my power to make sure that I never ex experience what I experienced as a child growing up. Um, and my children don't experience that. You know, my wife doesn't experience that. And, and everybody I can put my hand on doesn't experience that. Mm -hmm. So um, I would always ask them, like, how do you become successful? Because, like, I got to figure this out. I cannot go back because I finally got an opportunity to get out. Mm -hmm. Right? So um, they would always tell me, like, oh, just don't ask for permission. Just ask for forgiveness. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was like, all right, bet. I'm about to go do anything I could try to put my hands on. And so, you know, time went on, I deployed a few times and my wife was like, yo, you gotta find another career. Cause like, <laughs> you being in the military is just not gonna cut it. Like, <laughs> we trying to have kids, we trying to have a family, I'm trying to have you around, yeah. you know? And and that can take a mental toll too, um, over time. And, and so shout out to, you know, all my, you know, veteran brothers and sisters out there. And, you know, I, I know what you're going through. I know what you've been through, and and and, and keep keep striving. Um, but but know when you're not okay, um, to say you're not okay and get you some help. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, so my wife convinced me to go to college, and I came to Southern University thinking I was going to be a social worker, hmm. and uh, sat in a chemistry class because I wanted to go back and help my community. That was my right. whole thing. Mm -hmm. Yo, if I'm gonna leave the military, I'm going back and help my community. That's yeah. Me. You know, that's it. Like, I yeah. want to go back. Um, and then I sat in on the chemistry class, and I was doing really well. And the teacher was like, why are you, like, what are you doing with your life? Like, why don't you, why don't you become, like, a scientist or something or a doctor? Hmm. Um, you know, and so uh, she put me in touch with a scientist who helped me to blossom into a scientist, even while I was an undergrad. Wow. Put me in some really peculiar spaces to do some really cool things. Um, I went and did research at Merck Pharmaceuticals, which was a Fortune 500 company at the time, um, while I was still in undergrad. And, um, you know, that blossomed into me going to NYU to get my PhD um, off the strength of, you know, the, the dean of the, the NYU School of Medicine, who was like a father to me, calling me and being like, yo, like, you could come here and get your PhD and we're going to pay you to do it. Wow. <laughs> Um, so they, they, they were paying me a nice chunk of change to go there and get a PhD. And I also became a Howard Hughes Medical Institute fellow while I was there. You know, um, I did some I did some pretty good mm -hmm. stuff while I was there. But I was always about the community. Um, I co-founded a program while I was there called Clear Direction Mentoring um, that uh, recruited uh, 
really talented PhD, MD, PhD, and and, uh, and MD uh, students at top tier institutions in New York to mentor students who are struggling in in high school um, in all five boroughs in New York City. Mm. Um, and then we helped some of those kids get to college. Um, and so it was always about me like figuring out a way to reach back into the community, right? Like I think I can look at every intersection of my life and figure out there was a moment in which I was trying to figure out how to give back to the community. And so, you know, when it was time to decide on what I was gonna do next, at this point, getting my PhD, I was like, yo, it's possible I can be a scientist and a physician. Like that is a possibility at this point. Yeah. Cause at this point I had experienced all these other successful things. I was like, yo, I think I could do anything. I could do anything at this point. So like, let me try this med school thing out. Um, Cause I, I really wanted to do science, but I also wanted to make sure that I was understanding of the, the medicine behind some of the science we were doing. Mm-hmm. And so I'm applied to med school and my, my professors um, at NYU were very supportive of that. Um, even to the point of financially supportive, being supportive of it. Um, mm. And so they, they kind of helped me with that whole, you know, this is how much it costs to apply to med school thing. Um, and so that, that's kind of how I know how important it is to have somebody in your, you know, in your corner who's like, yo, I'm, I'm really going to help you. Like, I'm not just going to verbally help you. Yeah. I'm going to write letters of recommendation for you. I'm also going to make sure you get this flight to where you're trying to go mm-hmm. and you have somewhere to stay, you know, and like you're good to go. So um, that's how, that's really how meaningful it is. Um, and so, you know, I was going to, I thought that it was about prestige to be candid with you. And I was like, oh, I'm going to go to, I'm going to go to Cornell for med school. And I got accepted into Cornell for medical school. Um, and just as I interviewed at Tulane, I came to a church the evening of my interview, um, a little small black church that I attend now. Mm. That's literally next door to my house. Mm. Um, and they and they got up and were like, who are you? And I started explaining myself to them and they were like, oh, we need you here. Let me tell wow. you why. And they were like, you would be our, like nobody this important ever comes to our church. Oh. Like, they were like, you beat our community. I was like, no, nah, not really. But they were like, we need you to come here. I was like, all right, bet. All right, so I'm coming home. And mm-hmm. I always had a start to come, you know, to Louisiana. Um, and it just felt right. So we, you know, 30 minutes after my daughter was born, my second daughter was born, I got an email from uh, Tulane. Um, and they told me that they would pay for all of my medical education. Wow. So I had a full ride right. from grad through my PhD and through my MD and the only education I've ever had to pay for was my MBA wow mm-hmm. that's so inspiring it's amazing what you know people believing in you has the ability to continue to lift you and to dream bigger and I know that that's what you're trying to do with providing scholarships and helping with reducing costs related to applications is giving students a boost to achieve dreams and to continue to dream bigger. As you've been in medical school and you've been more acquainted with the health concerns and needs of various communities, how have you seen the access to medical providers who people can identify with impacting the health of those communities? 
Like if you see people that either share an experience the same as you or that look like you, how does that impact whether people seek medical attention or whether they have more medical concerns or not? Right. So, so I'll tell you this short story and that'll give you the whole uh, gamut of, of what your question is really getting at. So I was, I, I am trying my very best to become a child and adolescent psychiatrist. Mm. Um, that's really what I want to be when I grow up. I really want to focus in on mental health for minority children in um, indigent areas of Louisiana. Um, right. So um, I was shadowing um, a child and adolescent psychiatrist who is a huge mentor to me um, here in New Orleans at this place called Crescent Care, which provides um, little to no cost free care to um, minority communities uh, and LGBTQ um, plus communities, right? And so there was... Um, this one experience that changed my life forever. Mm. Um, I was sitting in his office. I had my white coat on, I had my tie on, and I was sitting out having a conversation with him. And he was like, I have a patient who's coming. Um, let me go get them. And so he kind of cracked, he closed the door a little bit. And he walked out to go get the patient. And when he came back um, and he opened the door, this little 12 year old little, black boy um just stood there for a second or two mm. in awe <laughs> he was like wow. i cannot believe this like so he sat down he eventually sat down and he couldn't take his eyes off of me picture of me like i'm not the average looking you know um <laughs> person in medicine is probably the best way to put it um you know i'm a i'm a a a bigger guy i got a big curly fro i got a a big beard i got i'm loud you know Mm -hmm. um i keep a big smile and um you know i was sitting there looking at this kid and he looking at me and you know he's having this conversation with the the psychiatrist and then eventually um the psychiatrist was like you want to talk to him? And of course, in my mind, I'm like, of course I want to talk to this kid. Like, <laughs> I want to talk to him about like everything, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, and he was like, you know, initially he was a little recluse and then it, it finally just opened. It was like the flood mm. opened, you know, and this kid was just like telling me everything. Like he's telling me about his girlfriend, about football, about, you know, what he eat on a regular basis, how he likes school, how he don't like school, how his cousins interact with this and that. And I'm thinking in my head, like, man, I wonder if this kid tells this to everybody he talked to. And I in my mind I was like, Yo, I know he don't tell this to everybody. Mm-hmm. He not comfortable told us to everybody. But he just like couldn't it, it was kinda like a, 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 a raw moment where he was like I just can't believe you in here. <laughs> you know, I, I just can't believe you sitting across from me right now. You know, and he, he's still trying to take into account, like, is it okay for you to even be here? You know, so um, mm-hmm. you know, I think that really, like, that's my personal experience with the game changes when the person, like, the person, I always, I, I kind of equated it like this. I'll ask some of my um, 
uh, white colleagues sometimes. I'm like, imagine if every time or most of the time you walked into a pay, like a, a, a caretaker walked into your room, they were black. Mm. Every time. How would, like, could you imagine? Like, could you imagine that? I was like, hey. And then that one time somebody comes in who, like, looks like you are, you know, they have some sort of, uh, you know, commonality with you. That's very obvious, right? Mm -hmm. You'll be elated. You'll be so relieved. Mm -hmm. And you'll be so, like, your guard will be down enough for you to disclose things that, you know, you probably wouldn't normally. Because you feel like, for once, like, the person listening to you, you actually can understand where you're from, what you're going through, how life works for you. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's not to say that we have a homogenous experience, but we do have most definitely some shared experiences. And I think it helps that I'm from Louisiana. So, you know, I'm a Louisiana boy in and out. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, it's it's you know, the conversation and the you know, the the the, the way things are talked about is is a tad bit different because you know, I'm from here. So when they say certain things, I know what that means. Yeah. You know, um, makes so you yeah, even more relatable. Exactly. Exactly. And yeah. that's what you need in medicine. You need somebody who's relatable enough for them to disclose to you what you need in order to treat them the best. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Ah, oh, that's very moving. <laughs> Hearing the experience that you had with that child. And there's just so much, such a need across the nation and, and around the world too, but I really see a need in, across the country for mental health mm-hmm. and focusing on the needs of young people mm-hmm. helps to give them a future, you know, when they're not given the resources and the support and, you know, they're, they're living in such difficult circumstances. It, it's so limiting. So I think it's, it's incredible that people are focused on on the mental health needs but to specifically work with kids in that is is really wonderful absolutely well dr Lede, thank you so much for your your time i'm just really so inspired by the work you're doing for being a role model reframing the narrative for young people and for the history of where you've come from and continuing to write an inclusive history for future generations. I think that there's still so much to be done and this is an amazing step in in a very needed direction. And as this is Black History Month, is there a specific message that you're wanting to leave with people or something that you're wanting people to better understand about history in general that is not being shared or anything that you would like to communicate related yeah. to that? Yeah, I think, I think Lauren, my, my message um, specifically for this month of this year is, I think this message is a, uh, an others message. Um, and by others, I mean, those who don't fall into those minority categories is stop mm-hmm. discounting stop is to stop discounting the plight and the negative impact that history has played on the current position of a lot of mm-hmm. people um i think far too often we have um exercised this um pseudo innate power of canceling out the 
narrative of people who are disenfranchised and saying, oh, yeah, they just complaining because they're not in a place of power. No, they're complaining because their complaints are real. Yeah. Um, yes. You know, when people tell you they aren't feeling well, generally, they actually aren't feeling well. Um, um, and, and so I think when people sit up here and say things like, oh, black people need to stop having a conversation around slavery. It happened so long ago. Um, or uh, the Latina X community needs to stop talking about, um, you know, um, issues around immigration or acceptance in community and things of that nature. They need to just stop complaining because we gave them an opportunity or, you know, the LGBT community needs to stop, you know, all this noise because we've given them, you know, first of all, you didn't need to, you don't need to give them anything. <laughs> you know, this is not, you don't have the power to give anyone anything. Um, so I think we need to stop discounting these stories because the, the, the sooner we start doing that, the sooner we can start having authentic healing in conversations that are real around the real history that America has had, which is not, you know, pretty. It is not pretty by any means. Um, and it's why a lot of uh, unrest and inequality exists today. Absolutely. I think that's really important. You know, I think a lot of times we don't approach awareness days or awareness months or things like that from a position of awareness. I think, you know, like you're saying, this isn't as much about celebrating a history of something. It's about bringing an awareness of the impact and the discrepancy of the conversations that we're having around the impact that's been made, like you said, the calamity of slavery and how that's continuing to impact our country and interactions with people and keep certain communities from achieving, yeah, yeah, achieving more through the economy, through, you know, access to services, all kinds of things um, that impact communities. But this is more about that conversation with non-Black people to better understand yeah. the history of what we're currently experiencing and to create conversations that are healing. Because like you're saying, we can't ever be on the same page and have those conversations until we acknowledge what came before and what is currently existing and how we need to continue to strive to to bridge that gap. If there is one word that summarizes what you're working to accomplish or a word that is really meaningful to you in your life, is there something that comes to mind? Yeah, that word for me is authenticity. Mm. Um, genuine authenticity and not just you know, superficial, uh, uh, you know, perceived authenticity. I mean, like people truly being who they are, um, you know, and, and, and their authenticity not hurting other people. You know, I think people are living a life that is acceptable for a lot of people and that's hurting them in the long run. Mm. That's you a know? really interesting distinction. You know, I think a lot of people do things in the name of authenticity without mm -hmm. taking account how they're impacting the people around them. Um, mm -hmm. But we can't have an experience without the people around us. So mm -hmm. it definitely goes hand in hand. Yep. 
Well, I think it's so amazing to hear more of your story. Like I knew a little bit about what you're currently doing and what you're building towards, but understanding more of where you came from and the the journey that you've been on is is so inspiring and I think it takes a certain level of strength and vision to be able to overcome so many of these hurdles. I think so many people see what's around them and their immediate environment and their dreams are limited to what they think is possible based on what their experience has been and as you've shown, the more you break through these barriers, you continue to dream bigger, and now you're inspiring kids across the country and, and adults and people in very influential places as well. So I'm excited to see where this continues to grow and what you continue to do with the 15 White Coats and in medical school and with your community. It sounds like you've always been very focused on giving back and serving people and that is the substance of the best doctors and the people that can really impact the most change and serve people well and so I really wish you the best as you continue your education and as you reach even more people so thank you so much for sharing your story and I'm excited to see what you continue to build. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. And I'll definitely be listening in for more episodes um, of The Way Life Should Be. Thank you. You've been listening to The Way Life Should Be, music written by Jenny and Tyler, entitled Love Through Me. Follow us online at Life Be Podcast for updates. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening.